Now, my name, my given name, is Leonard. And when I was a kid, I hated it. It just sort of sounded kind of, I don't know, Leonard. Leonard. I don't know. You know, uh, so, so I chose Len, which sounds Len, Len, a little more sprightly, so on. Now, I was named after two important people in my dad's life. I was named after his piano teacher. My dad was a very good pianist. His piano teacher was even better, Adele Leonard, a really wonderful woman. Also named after his best friend through his life, uh, Leonard Wheeldon. So I knew that was important to him. But it didn't become important to me until Jesus once pointed out to me the meaning of that name, Leonard. It's Lionheart. And as somebody who has struggled all of his life with anxiety, the Lord Jesus has given me courage. He's given me freedom from fear. I'm no longer a slave from fear. And so Jesus said, you need to claim that name. And ever since, particularly as I've moved in, back into the city, I'm introducing myself to people and, and saying, my name is Leonard. It's a great name. And of course, uh, the name of Jesus is an amazing name. Uh, the name Jesus, that means God saves. Well, um, today uh, we're continuing in a series uh, where we're looking at some names that are lesser known uh, in the Bible, uh, particularly in the New Testament. We're calling them best supporting actors. These names are not necessarily the first that come to your mind when you think of the New Testament, but nonetheless, the people that are named such are important in God's plan. And you know what? That's sort of like me and you. When people think of God and his great plan, they don't necessarily think of your name or my name, but we are key and important in the plan of God, and it has something to do with our names. So we've looked at a couple of names already uh, that are sort of a little bit lesser known. We looked last week, uh, a couple of weeks ago, with Pastor Tom at the name Elizabeth. Now that name means God is satisfaction. What a great name. God satisfies. And it's kind of interesting that this woman who always wanted to have a child was given a child in her old age. Now, she was probably in her 40s, but that was old age back then. She was an older woman, and she was satisfied to be given the birth of this child, John, who would later be called the Baptist. And she became an encourager to the Virgin Mary, who also had a very unusual birth that came to her as a young woman. Last week, we looked at uh, the character of Andrew. Now that's a Greek name, it's not a Jewish name, and it means manly or brave. Now I gotta tell you, that guy needed to be brave after he met Jesus to go to his brother Simon to tell him that he needed to come and find Jesus of Nazareth. Because uh, those two guys were fishermen, and it's pretty clear that Simon, who would later be called Peter, because he was going to be the rock on which Jesus would build the church because of his confession of faith. They were fishermen, so they were a little bit salty. So uh, Andrew needed to have a little courage to go and address his brother in that way. And you and I need courage to talk to our friends about what Jesus has done for us. Jesus, the one who is, literally means God saves by his incarnation through the Virgin Mary, by his crucifixion on the cross, by his resurrection from the dead, and by his being at the right hand of the throne of God, ascended on high right now, interceding and praying for everyone in this room and for the whole world. 
Well, today's supporting actor is really not really lesser known. He's actually a well-known name in the New Testament, but not a name that you would bring up pretty often. It's certainly not a name that the Colton family would say, let's name our son this name. Since this character has a name that is associated one of the worst values in human affairs, it's a character trait that came about because of the fall of humanity into sin. You may have guessed who we're talking about. We're talking about Judas, whose name literally means the traitor in our thinking, but actually means God be praised. That's what his name means. It was actually a very common name in the era of Judas. I can't think of a single person I know who's named Judas. I don't know as you can. Jude, yes, but Judas, uh, -uh, I don't think so. Now, his name was Judas Iscariot. Now, that's not the kind of negative part, if you will. Uh, that means he came from the biblical town of Kerioth. And remember, he was chosen by Jesus, chosen as one of the 12 apostles. It wasn't 11 and, oh, yeah, you're the guy that's going to betray me. Jesus apparently knew that this was going to happen. But Judas was chosen, and he was sent out with the other 12. So he preached, he proclaimed the kingdom, he healed, he delivered in the name of Jesus. He was anointed by God, chosen by God to be one of the special 12. He was, in a sense, I think on a par in leadership in that band of 12 with Peter, who really was the key leader of the 12. But Judas was right there because they gave him the money. He had the money bag. He took care of their resources and he took care of the, the funds that they would allocate uh, to the poor. Now, in fact, there is a so-called Gospel of Judas that was discovered about 20 or 30 years ago. It was written in the late 2nd century that pictures Judas and Jesus having conversations about what Judas was going to do. Now, let me just make a little side point here. Some of us watch A&E, some of us watch uh, the Nat Geo, some of us watch uh, the History Channel. And when they get around to these kind of gospels that are not included in our Bible, there's this voice that comes on the, the screen that says, and the church met and decided they could not accept this orthodox, unorthodox teaching. You know, this kind of conspiracy thing as if there are a bunch of guys sitting with cigars, you know, in this room saying, no, we're not going to take that gospel of Judas, but I'll give you the letter of James, okay? Let's make a deal, you know? A bunch of kind of old white guys sitting around making things happen. Well, let's just say a couple things about that. First of all, they're not a bunch of old white guys. They're mostly Middle Eastern and Northern African, so that puts that to rest. Also, the, the, the way they used to determine what's in and out wasn't because of what they liked. It was what because of what the people were receiving, all over the then old world. The test of what's called Catholicity means that whatever text we have now in the Bible was received by people of different cultures all over the world. And the Gospel of Judas was just a small sliver of people who thought that was authentic. And so it's something that somebody wrote. Maybe it has something to add to the, our thinking about things but it's not Bible. Just remember that the next time you think that the church has withheld something from you, okay? 
It's just not the case, not the case. So in any event, there's that gospel of Judas, but he is a supporting actor. He sets the whole plan in motion, the thing that Jesus really came to earth to do, in addition to proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom of God, what the reign of a heavenly father would look like if it were fully in action, He came to suffer and to die so that we might enter into that act, so that our sin would not be a barrier, so that it could be forgiven when he died on the cross. It was Judas who set that thing in motion. Because if you don't know the story, at some point along the line, he started colluding with the religious leaders of the day who were really not happy with Jesus because he was kind of pressing at the status quo. He would say things like, well, you've heard that it was said this, an unsupported interpretation of the Old Testament. He would say, I'm going to clean that up and say what that meant was this. And those who supported the old interpretation, which was the old guard, they were not happy. So Judas colluded with them because they wanted to get Jesus off the stage, but they couldn't do it because he was surrounded by his disciples and by a whole bunch of other people who were so excited by him. So they needed to find a time when they could get him, so to speak, alone. And Judas set that plan in motion. He colluded with them and he knew Jesus' patterns and knew that on the night before the Passover that they would be celebrating this special meal and that Jesus would most likely go to the Garden of Gethsemane and he told them, I will meet you there and the one I kiss, that's the guy and so they came and took Jesus away so he is a significant supporting actor somewhere along the way Judas lost his way in order to be fulfilling God's plan now he's called in John chapter 17 verse 12 in the King James Version the son of perdition which sort of has the idea that he's lost and gone forever and that may well be so Because let me make another little side point. There is such a thing as hell, and there are going to be people there. And we just have to say that. But the reality is, we really have a hard time determining who's in or who's out. The only thing that really we can say is that Jesus knows, and we can know and have assurance that we are in if we're connected with him by grace through faith. But it's hard to say that he's out. So I prefer to call him the lost son, which is what the words in the original text really implies. He's the lost son who came to a very bad end. And his life gives us some really important lessons, especially when compared to his counterpart in Scripture, which would be Peter. Now, what I'm going to be saying to you today has some things that come from the Bible that are what are called proscriptive. They are do this or don't do this kind of things. But what I'm also going to be sharing with you are some things that are descriptive of a particular life. And you can draw some principles, but you can't necessarily say, because somebody did this in the Bible, you ought to do that as well. There's an old story told about the guy who liked to get up in the morning and find God's will for himself by closing his eyes, praying, opening the Bible, and putting his finger down wherever it stopped in the scripture and doing whatever his finger was under. So one morning he gets up, he prays, Lord, show me your will for me. Wherever my finger stops, I will do it. He opened the Bible up and he got to Matthew 27 verse 5 where it said, Judas went out and hanged himself. 
And so he was a little bit, a little bit put aback by, Lord, that really can't be it. Okay, I'll pray again. Lord Jesus, I pray you'd show me and so on. He put his finger down and he got to Luke chapter 10, 37, where Jesus said to Judas, go and do likewise. And he said, oh no, that, that, that can't be it. And so he prayed once more and he put his finger down in John 13, 27, where Jesus said, what you are to do, do it quickly. Um, so just to say, you need to get the context. You need to know what kind of a story and what kind of a literature you're looking at. So we're going to be looking at narrative, primarily the narrative of this life of Judas. Now this is a very complicated character. I think in some ways the tradition that comes out of the scripture doesn't really know what to do with Judas. He's a chosen apostle. He betrays the Lord. He's the lost son. He's the son of perdition. What are we to make of this life? And that's what I love about the Bible. Because if I was going to write the story of Judas, I would make him out to be just the worst person ever. I would kind of not have him be one of the 12. I'd have him be some outsider who came in and knocked Jesus off. But instead, we get a real picture of a real human being. So the first negative lesson that we learned from Judas is that he gave Satan a foothold in his life. Now that means he gave Satan place in his life or an opportunity of his life or influence in his life. So to speak, he came under the influence of another spirit, a demonic spirit that somehow came upon him that began to control him or at the very least to direct him. Now when Jesus was choosing the 12, he says, I've chosen all of you and yet one of you is a devil, referring to the one who is going to betray him. And at the Last Supper, when Judas was gathered with the other 11, it says in John 13 that the devil prompted Judas to betray Jesus. And then at communion with Jesus, as he took the bread from the master's own hands, the scripture says in John 13 and in Luke that Satan entered into Judas. Satan entered in him and he went out and did his work of betrayal. Now, how did that happen? How did it happen that one of Jesus' own chosen 12 came to be so under the influence of evil? How does a chosen believer that perhaps you've known turn on Jesus and act in league with Satan? Perhaps you've had friends of yours that have been friends of Jesus who are friends no more. I can think of several people who are not just no longer following God, but they're like on, on the other side. They're kind of attacking God and, and what he's about. I'm thinking about a younger friend of mine who had a, a, a friend that was closer than a brother. and They loved the Lord together. And this other brother now has turned away from Jesus and now really turned on Jesus. So he said to his friend, I don't want you to hear that you say that name and I don't want to ever hear you pray. And it's created an incredible rift between them. How does that happen? Or teachers of God's word, some of whom have asked serious questions, particularly of the church, who now have, through the years, gotten to the point where they just don't proclaim God's word anymore. They, they attack it, and they attack the church, and they attack the God that's revealed in the scripture. How does that happen? Well, I think in this case, Judas gave Satan a foothold through bitterness. Through bitterness. He became embittered about Jesus and about what it meant to be a follower of his. 
Now, if you look in John chapter 12 and verse 1, it's a little story. It's a beautiful story that is going to show us another principle from the main action in the story, which is this beautiful encounter that Jesus has with his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, the man who he would have recently raised from the dead, at their home in Bethany. Chapter 12, it's on page 761 in the Bible uh, that is in front of you. So it says that as they were gathered together for a meal, uh, Mary took a pint of pure nard, which was an expensive perfume. It was kind of a liquid cream that people would use. They didn't have, you know, showers that they could take every day. Uh, they didn't have a secret deodorant. This was it. So they put a little dab on, dab there, and it would kind of cover the stench. And uh, so she took that thing and she poured the whole thing over his feet. It's an absolutely beautiful uh, kind of example of worship. But then she did even more than that. She let down her hair. She took whatever it was that held her hair up and she let it down. She went over his feet and she wiped his feet with her hair. Now that was a little bit over the top. In those days, a woman letting down her hair was sort of a sign of something and she would never, never have done that in the presence of a man who was not her husband or a member of her family. But in fact, Jesus was her family. And so she did this beautiful act of worship. I, I, you know, the sense of smell is probably the most powerful sense that you and I possess. And I don't think anybody in that room ever forgot the smell of that perfume that just wafted over the place. And she wiped his feet with her hair. I mean, I, I, I can imagine it. How I would have loved to have been there to see that. I don't know, I would have been bawling. I would have been weeping my eyes out just at such a beautiful expression of love. But Judas, oh my gosh, it says here, one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, we're reminded, he objected. He objected to this. And not for the unseemliness of it, he said, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. And he was right. It was about 300 denarii for a bottle of that. 300 days' wages. That could have given a lot of poor people some, some bread, Judas was saying. But, but there's an edge here. He's objecting to a beautiful act of worship. Something has happened to him. It sounds really bitter to me. There's something going on here. And, and by the way, the scripture goes on to say, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. You know, one for the poor, one for the group, and one for me. So something has happened, and I think it's expressed in this bitter, bitter attitude. He couldn't see the beauty that was in front of him, the love that was being expressed. He was filled with bitterness. You see, sometimes in, in ministry, even in Christian ministry, the motivation isn't love, but rather it's about bitterness how kind of taking care of the business and getting those people satisfied. Now, I just want to say that when people begin to be bitter about what's going on around them, particularly in the church, you just watch. If that ever happens to you, you ought to take note because if people start getting bitter about the church, after a while, if that continues, they start getting bitter about the Bible. It just sort of happens. You know why? Because we are the stewards of God's word, the church. 
we're the ones that kind of cradle the Bible and present it to the world as the beautiful document that it is, a love message from God. And people who get bitter about the church get bitter about the Bible. And then, of course, they start getting bitter about the God who's revealed in the Bible. You just watch it happen. You know, some of these folks who have been critics of the church, and in some cases, you know, these teachers, they have been spot on in terms of their criticism of the way that we've behaved through history and the way that we behave today. Uh, sometimes we hang our heads in shame about what the church does and does not do. But they somehow allowed a spirit of bitterness to come inside of them. And now they're, they're kind of bitter about the Bible and they're saying, well, that isn't true and this doesn't happen and that isn't happening. And they're bitter about the God that's revealed in Scripture as if somehow he's bad, somehow he's wrong, somehow he's not the God that he says he is. You see, Scripture says in Hebrews 12:15, it says to us, see to it that no root of bitterness grows up in you. It's like a thing with a taproot. It's like a dandelion. It grows really deep bitterness. However it comes into your life. Now, some of us here have a right to be angry. Things have happened to us, either in our relationship with God or with the church, or things have happened to us because of other people who've really messed with us and wounded us, whether it be in our family or people that we've known or circumstances that have happened. And that anger is perfectly understandable. But if you've allowed it to fester, if you haven't dealt with it, then it's going to become a root of bitterness. And this pattern will begin to develop as it did for Judas. And you may end up finding yourselves betraying God and turning on God. If you have a root of bitterness, if you know right now as I'm speaking to you, if you are feeling something going on, you're saying, yeah, he's talking about me, then today is the day to go over there and get some prayer at the end of the service. Just open it up or to talk to somebody who can help you. Because that's, I think, what happened to Judas. Now, Peter could have become bitter because some of the very same things happened to Judas as a leader that happened to Peter. And in fact, Jesus said um, in Luke chapter 22, Simon, he said, using Peter's other name, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And then when you've returned, he says, you can help your brothers. Satan is at work in your life and mine. He wants to, so to speak, grab us. And the best way he can do it is by encouraging bitterness. We live in a very embittered culture, don't we? I mean, we're seeing it played out politically. We're seeing it played out in our neighborhoods, in our cities and towns and villages, in our apartment complexes, our condo places. Bitterness, bitterness is all around us. And we can go there. If you're on the right, you're bittered about what's going on on the left. If you're on the left, you're embittered at what's going on on the right. If you're in the middle of the center, you're bitter about what's going on on either side. And it's so easy to go there. You need to guard your heart from bitterness. The Bible says, submit to God. Our God is not a bitter God. He's a God of generosity, a God of open-heartedness. And we can be that if we will submit to him. Submit to his gracious rule. And then resist the devil, particularly in this matter of bitterness, and he will flee from you. So don't give the devil an opportunity. One more little comment, a little side comment about giving the devil an opportunity. It's been observed that uh, for those of us like uh, old people like Pastor Lou, um, who can remember the 1960s, although somebody said if you remember the 1960s, you weren't in the 1960s because most people were stoned in the 1960s. But it was called the Age of Aquarius. 
And some of us may remember there was a musical, I think it's been revived at various points, called Hair. This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. It was all about astrology and the occult and crystals and all that kind of stuff. And people were into that because they were so kind of freaked out by what was happening in the world and none of the institutions were uh, believable anymore and so on. And that's what went on in that time. Well, it seems as if the age of Aquarius has come back. There are a lot of people who were my age back then who are engaging in that now. The millennial generation and some people like my generation, we're kind of colluding together. We're starting to go back to that kind of astrology, crystal kind of stuff. That is a way to give the devil an opportunity in your life. If you're a follower of Jesus but doing a little bit of that kind of occult stuff on the side, it's not that it's demonic in and of itself, but the enemy comes along and says, if you're seeking knowledge, if you're seeking power, or you're seeking wealth and riches through anything other than the Lord, he will come along for the ride, and he'll just infect that and influence you. So don't, don't give the devil an opportunity. Renounce him at every turn. The second lesson from Judas is this, negative lesson. He kept to himself. He kept him to himself. Now, God said at the beginning of creation, it is not good for man to be alone. But Judas was a loner. He was a loner leader. Everywhere he went, it seems, he went by himself. Uh, Jesus always sent people two by two. He even sent two guys to go get a donkey, which was more than necessary. But when Judas went out, to go to the chief priest to betray Jesus. He went by himself, and nobody in the group of people gathered in, the, in that room said, hey, why is he going alone? Because he always went alone. It was his custom to go alone when he went on errands to give money to the poor or to provide things for the group or perhaps to provide something for himself. He, Judas was watching for a time to betray Jesus. He didn't do that with anybody else. He did that by himself. And he took the bread by himself. You know, when we come together for communion on first weekends of the month, um, we come together. I like the way we do it here. Uh, it's fine. Some churches do it where you all get a little individual thing and you sit in your individual seat. But that's not what communion is. It's not just communion with God. It's communion with one another. Judas was called into a fellowship, but somehow he didn't receive it. He acted by himself. He was one of many, but he was one. Now, you are called into fellowship, but it's possible that you are a loner, that you kind of keep to yourself and you keep your stuff to yourself, even your stuff with God to yourself. You don't have any connections. And we're all about connections here. Don't try to go it alone. Don't try to solve your problems by yourself. That's why we're here. That's why we need each other. Judas did that. And just to say, a lone sheep is a dead sheep because the wolf is looking to devour the sheep that's by itself. Judas kept to himself. Why? Why did he keep to himself? Well, it's because he had a plan for himself. He wanted to fulfill his own plan. Well, what was his plan? What was he about anyway? There have been a lot of theories about why Judas did what he did. It may have been that he wanted to get rid of Jesus. He just thought, whoa, I thought he was this, but he's that. I'm getting him out of here, so I'm going to collude with the authorities. They want him out, and he'll be done. Maybe that was why he did it. Another possibility is that perhaps he wanted to call out the real Jesus. 
The Messiah King Jesus, who would kick butt and get these Roman people out of here and these colluders like Herod, get them off the, off the scene. And so he would turn Jesus over and then, boy, Jesus would turn into, you know, the great amazing Avenger who would kind of take, take things into his own hands. Or maybe, maybe, maybe he was colluding in order to save Jesus from having to suffer and die. That again, there would be a rising up maybe of the disciples who would, again, not allow Jesus to be taken by his own plan as if he seemed to be heading towards death. And Judas may have joined Peter when Peter said, Lord, this will never happen to you. You are not going to suffer and die. And what did Jesus say to Peter at that point? Get behind me, Satan, he said to Peter. Maybe Judas was acting in the same way. Well, whatever happened at the Last Supper, he's by himself with Jesus and he's ready to fulfill his own plan. And Jesus told him, go ahead and do your plan. What you're about, do it quickly. Now, Judas would often go alone to buy stuff. So again, there was this sense that this was kind of a normal thing. So I just want to say, you're in trouble with Jesus if you're acting by yourself. And if you've got a plan for Jesus of what he's going to do in your life, I think you better give it up because he's just not going to submit to your plan. He's the one that has a plan for you, not the other way around. His plan is so much better than yours. Now, Peter may have had a plan for Jesus as the Messiah. We did hear him saying, no, you're not going to suffer and die. That's not going to happen to you. We've got a, I've got a better plan for you. But whatever his thoughts were about what Jesus was supposed to be about, he kept that ideas, those thoughts, those questions, he kept that to the church. He was kind of a company person. He was part of the family of God. And he was called Peter by Jesus. Jesus said to him, after Peter said, you're the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus replied, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, the word Peter means rock, on this rock, the rock that you are, Peter, in confessing this faith, I will build my church. That's what Peter was all about, was building up the family of God, the body of Christ. Somebody has said that we need to go through three conversions as we come to the Lord. The first, of course, is a conversion to Jesus. Then instead of running our own lives, we need to say, Lord, I give you my life. We need not just accept Jesus as Savior, but also as Lord, as the director, as the boss of our life. That's the first conversion. But the second is equally important, that we need to be converted to the church. There's a lot of people in the United States today and in Canada who are believers in Jesus, but they don't believe in the church. They're kind of like Gandhi, who perhaps correctly said, I like your Jesus, but it's his people I have trouble with. Yeah, we got trouble with each other. But we're called as followers of Jesus to be part of his family, the church, and to revere the church and respect the church and seek together to reform the church that we might be the beautiful bride that he is. So if you haven't become a part of the church, if you're simply an attender or if you're a distant critic, then there's a conversion waiting for you to the point where you say, I love, I love the church. I love the church. And then, of course, the third conversion is the conversion to mission, that it isn't just about me, it isn't just about us, it's about them. It's about them, the folks who have yet to discover the beauty of being in love with God. So don't keep to yourself. Don't be like Judas. The third thing we learn from Judas uh, and how not to do our life is very simple. He left Jesus. 
he left Jesus. He betrayed the Son of Man with a kiss, and, and Jesus said, Woe is the one who does that because he's going to be leaving me. He pretended to be innocent of wanting to do this. Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. No, I'm not going to do that, but that's exactly what it is. As he took the bread at the Last Supper, out he went. He left Jesus. That was the end of it. Of course, he would come up and kiss him, but that was a sham and a deception. Why did he go from being one of Jesus' closest disciples to being somebody who would leave him? Well, perhaps he left uh, Jesus to curry favor with others. You know, there is a war that goes on in the human soul between currying the favor of God and currying the favor of others, some of whom don't want God to be curried. And then maybe that's what happened to Judas. He copped an attitude with God, and he sidled up to the chief priest and the elders who didn't like Jesus, and, and he was going to be their hero. And he came up to them and he said, what are you going to give me if I turn him over to you? And they were delighted and offered him some money. Maybe he's going to get a better deal out of that. He's currying the favor of others. He's a man pleaser, as the Bible in the old version called it, rather than a God pleaser. Now, sometimes God disappoints us, right? Sometimes the peace, love, and joy that we think we're supposed to have in the Lord doesn't come our way and we get ourselves disappointed. We cop an attitude and think it's time to check out on Jesus and just kind of go somewhere else. And perhaps you've done that in the course of your life. I've gone in and out of my relationship with Jesus. But man, I could never leave him. Never. Oh my God. The, everything good that I have in my life has come because of him. I mean, where could I go? You know, Peter, Peter is a great example. Jesus was so frustrating to Peter. Peter, Peter is, a, is a kind of meat and potatoes kind of guy. He's kind of a, you know, a, a seafaring man. He, he knows fish. He knows things that are tangible. And here comes this guy who's just tangible and intangible. He's here and he's there. He's doing stuff that kind of upsets him and yet delights him. He's amazed as he sees a woman drying his feet with her, with her hair. He's just overwhelmed. But He's not going to leave. Even when Jesus' teaching got a little bit tough for people, and Jesus' disciples, as it says in John 6, started turning back and no longer followed him. And Jesus asked the 12, are you guys going to leave too? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. We've come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. We cannot possibly ever leave you. So I just want to say, you know, if, if you're on a swing away from God, don't go there. Don't go there. Don't ever leave Jesus. Work it out with him. He's worth it. Oh, I tell you, he's worth it. When he, when he gets you annoyed, when he gets you confused, he wants you to help you work it out. He, he'll help you. He'll be there for you. Maybe you need to do an attitude check this morning in terms of, have you got a bitter heart? Have you got a heart that's got another plan besides the plan of God for your life? Or... Maybe are you kind of cooling in your love for Jesus? I just want to say, don't, don't leave home without Jesus. And the final lesson, perhaps most important of all, is that Judas rejected forgiveness. That's the last thing. He rejected forgiveness. Now, in Matthew, we're told that Judas was, he was just dismayed by what happened. And, and he, he was seized with remorse. And he went back to the chief priests and the elders and returned the 30 pieces of silver. He said, I've sinned. I've betrayed an innocent man. I've betrayed innocent blood. He threw the money down into the temple and left. And then he went away and he hung himself. Wow. 
I mean, that guy could have been forgiven. I want to tell you this. There is no unforgivable sin. Can I say that again? There is no unforgivable sin. Nothing that I have ever done, and there's been a a ton, believe me, and nothing that you have ever done is unforgivable. Maybe Judas thought this was the unforgivable sin that he betrayed Jesus. Romans 8, 39 says, there is nothing in all creation, even something of our own creation, that can separate us from the love of God. But that forgiveness and that pardon must be engaged. It needs to be received and accepted if it's going to be effective. So Judas rejected forgiveness. And I think he did it because he sort of embraced his guilt and his shame. Now, guilt is a state of being. It's what we all are. We're all guilty before God. And remorse is a feeling that's intended to lead us back to God so that we can say, I'm sorry. So that we can say, I'm sorry to the people that we've wronged. Or we can let people say they're sorry to us. Or we can forgive them. That's what this is all about, that we might be reconciled and forgiven. But when we embrace shame and when we embrace guilt and remorse, it turns into shame, which is not of God that's of the enemy because shame says you are lost you are dead it's never going to work out and just don't let that happen that's again where the enemy comes in now it's very interesting the book of Acts it says that Judas uh, didn't return necessarily to the chief priest it doesn't mention that it says he went and bought a field and with some of the money and that his bowels gushed out again it's that kind of sense that Perhaps that's a well-rounded story. Maybe that's where he hanged himself. That's where he died. We don't know. But in any event, we know that he did not receive forgiveness. And he committed suicide. Let me say this. Suicide is never a good option. Never. It's never a good option. It's not your way out. It's not your way out. Now, again, it's not the unforgivable sin. This story, I'm afraid, because he's called the son of perdition, has led some to believe that suicide is the unforgivable sin. It's not, but it's never the way out. There's always forgiveness with God. There's always reconciliation. There's always new possibilities with God. So I want to say again, if anybody here today has been entertaining suicidal thoughts, please, please talk with one of us. Please go back and get some prayer. Talk with one of the pastors around here. Don't let yourself leave this place today having suicidal thoughts. We want to help you with that. God wants to help you with that. It's never the option. Peter, on the other hand, he received forgiveness. I think his betrayal of Jesus was worse than Judas's because to his face, I will not leave you. And three times he denied even knowing Jesus. He had guilt. He had remorse. Maybe shame was pouring over him, but he waited it out until maybe eight days later, Jesus met him. See, he's kind of funny in the resurrection stories. He's silent all the way through. He doesn't say anything. Here's the leader of the church who says nothing during the resurrection until he meets Jesus. And Jesus assures him, that he has forgiven him by saying, you're going to feed my lambs, you're going to tend my sheep. He said to him three times, paralleling the three times that Peter renounced the Lord. So always, always be ready for forgiveness. Receive it, it's available to you. So Judas is the lost son. He's lost with Satan. He's lost in his solitude. He's lost a savior. And he's therefore without solace. But he's a son nonetheless. He was the beloved of God. 
Now, the Bible seems to be a little bit equivalent about what happened to him. It's as if they're not sure, the Bible, what to make of him. And that's a good thing for us. Because, you know, we tend to root people in or out very quickly. You know how quickly we make judgments about people and the way they look or the way they sound? And only God knows where we're going to end up. You can have assurance of that today if you'll connect with Jesus, that you're going to end up in the best place ever imaginable. But I think it's good that even Judas, who knows? You might see him there. Let me show you an icon. Now, this is not an ancient icon. It's a contemporary icon. But it's a picture of St. Judas of Iscariot. Now, he's got that little halo thing. That's called a nimbus in Christian art. And you'll notice the holy people are the ones who have a nimbus. You know what? You all got nimbuses around you if you've got Jesus in your life. You can't see it, but we can. You've got holiness all over you because of Jesus. But in Christian art, um, Judas is usually depicted as not having a nimbus or having a dark one. But here he's got a light one. And he's got a Bible in his hand, but you also notice he's got a noose around his arm. And he's got the mark of that noose around his neck. And we don't know. We don't know. Suicide is not the unforgivable sin, but it sure is not a way to go. And so I just want to say it's really important that, that we that we hold each other lightly, that we encourage each other towards the Lord, that Judas is a negative example, but the mercy of God trumps all kinds of things. There is a hell, and yes, there are people there, but none of us has the right to put anybody there uh, other than God. We are like Judas, lost children. We need to renounce Satan. We need to relate to other people. We need to return to Jesus if we've wandered and receive his forgiveness, the best gift of all. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you so much for this story, which is a hard one of a difficult man. And we don't know about him, where he is now, but we know that wherever he is, that's the right thing because you are his Lord, even in death. But we ask, Lord, that we would be given grace not to follow his example except in his being a follower of yours and that we would follow him more closely than he did and that you would draw us back into your body. In your name we pray. Amen.